We are all looking forward to it. A summer in which you can have a drink on a terrace or visit a museum or go to an interesting city center across the border to Belgium or Germany. And as we are eager to look forward to summer, we now look into what you can find in a one hour drive from Eindhoven. The city of Eindhoven, together with Aachen and Leuven, is often called a high-tech region. But that triangle is also a triangle with a rich history. We go to the city of Aachen, Liège and Maastricht now. Historically, it could also be seen as the center from which Europe was founded. Particularly if we go back to the times of Charlemagne. Today, Hilbert de Waal of via-cultura.nl is our guide and he takes us to the most interesting places and has tips for us on what to see. In fact, driving one hour to the south, there are a number of interesting places to visit. Yeah, well, there's a lot to see. Uh, I, um, I started uh, doing guided tours in this area some 10 years ago right now, and um, as of now. And, and it, I must say, it's a fascinating area. And it's, it's, it mainly has to do with the fact that you, are, ha you have within, uh, uh, within an hour's drive, you have three interesting cities, uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, Maastricht, Aachen, and uh, Liège in Belgium. The cities are completely different. Uh, and they all have the different aspects and, and different atmosphere. Um, so yeah, if you have like uh, the weekend off, I'd say uh, um, hike down south and, and visit uh, maybe not all three cities, but but there is a lot of uh, lot of history in common in between the three cities. It's a beautiful area. You have a lot of. Uh, beautiful sceneries and landscapes so it's it's worthwhile i heard you say hike down south it is about 80 <laughs> kilometers you can take the bike eh, and do it in a couple of hours but it's just a one hour ride you're originally not from limburg but you started to live there exactly for the rich culture because you're uh, i think by education and historian is that correct yeah 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 i studied history at leiden university in the late 80s early 90s and ended up uh, living here in the early 90s after my studies. Uh, been in a lot of different uh, niches and, and environments and working for different companies. But um, again, being a freelancer right now for about 10 years, uh, so picking up my old habits of history in a way um, and digging into the, um, in the more local stories. And, and that's, that's for me, the interesting part, because you all always have this, like this, this, this like firm, uh, bases from where you can explain things to people. Uh, you, I'd like to put things in a setting. Uh, you can, of course, you can visit a city, whether it be Aachen or Maastricht and talk about, this is a Baroque style, this is that, this is so... Uh -huh. it, it, it tends to be a bit tedious in the end, uh, and I always try to uh, put it in a, in a grand scheme of things. <laughs> so that's my approach. And you like that connect to things that were happening in, in history, uh, not yeah. only have the small tiny facts and put things in the boxes like a Baroque style. We decided when we were preparing this program to take Charlemagne, Charles the Great, so to say, yeah. as a kind of theme, a threat through this program. Why was he important for the region? 
Yeah, well, he's he's an intriguing figure, uh, a man uh, living in the uh, late 8th century, so more than 1,200 years ago right now. Um, he was a, a Frankish king, um, and he was the first one who had himself also crowned emperor again. And that was a kind of a novelty in the um, in the uh, 700s, in the late 700s. Or he was crowned, in fact, in 800 precisely in Rome by the Pope. But he managed to, well, to get something together again, which seemed a bit like the grand old days of the Roman Empire, uh, which uh, had been gone already for more than uh, three, four centuries. So he um, he has been um, uh, spreading his wings all over northwestern Europe um, in this feudal system uh, with fiefdoms and with interdependencies among noblemen, but uh, created an empire. And in that way, he is an interesting historical figure. Was he really an emperor or was he also an innovator? Because we know from the Romans that there was also a lot of technology coming to the region. We also know from Napoleon, who also had a great uh, influence, that he, particularly in the legal system, made a lot of innovations. Was uh, Charlemagne just uh, a remarkable person with a great influence or did he have a vision? Was he an innovator for the region? Yeah, well, he had he had a vision. I think it has been uh, by historians later on, has been maybe a bit exaggerated uh, in in certain aspects. Uh, a lot of people they they like to claim that he is the inventor of education in northwestern Europe. He he invented schools, and uh, and then you see these pictures, especially in the 19th century, these paintings where all the children from the village were attending schools, and because of Charlemagne. Well, that's of course. Uh, not completely uh, as it was, but uh, he has been um, he has been trying to innovate um, in 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 the way he managed the empire, but also in these aspects like 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 education, currency. I mean, you might call him the the, the founder of the uh, the pre-modern euro, <laughs> which was was not very uh, widely used but um, yeah so he, he he really did some things and and he tried and that's an interesting aspect uh, because of course they knew about the Romans and they were they were also copying uh, works by by the famous uh, people like Lucretius or, or, or Roman architects uh, being mentioned but he tried to revive this whole Roman idea and I think that that made him in, in a way also historically important, he had himself crowned Roman emperor. I mean, he was, I don't want to call him a savage barbarian, like a, a German, or uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but he, uh, he tried to connect to the Roman empire idea. And that would play a role for the next uh, thousand years in, uh, in European history. Uh, so in, in a way, as an innovator, both in his policies in church policies as well, currency, culture. He was a, a patron of the arts. Huh? So things like these were not un, unimportant. But you ha always have to look at the the, the, the level of things. Uh, it was a very, a very basic society. Uh, you don't want to compare it to, to Versailles or the Sun King, Louis XIV. It was all people in woods, a lot of wolves. So the setting was a different one. But still... 
we can see in many of the cities the remnants, the, the, the things that he had been striving for. Now, if yes. we're driving south from Eindhoven, about a one-hour drive, at some point we need to take a turn and to pick a city. And I think particularly near Gerleen, Junction Kerensheide is the place where we had to choose for Maastricht, more a Roman place or so, or Aachen, go to Germany or to, to, to Liège. So we take a left turn and go to Aachen first. Yeah, well, it might be a wise idea to to start with uh, Aachen, um, because in the uh, already in the days of the Romans, so in the let's say in the first second century AD, it is the bigger city, so it's bigger than Maastricht. And Maastricht was, of course, a Roman stronghold. Uh, there was a bridge, a Roman bridge, uh, but it was on on a smaller scale. Whereas Aachen, uh, already in the Roman days, had had a, 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 some some importance because of the hot springs. So the Romans came there visiting the hot springs. They had some bathhouses, and um, there was still pretty much to see over there in the late 700s for Charlemagne, for the Franks, because they were, you could you could just reuse it for part. I mean, not everything was destroyed or gone. Uh, some of the buildings were still uh, functioning in proper order. And uh, I'd say start with Aachen. Uh, start with uh, Charlemagne, where he was really the man uh, in the center of his empire. It's good to see that Aachen was the largest city, whereas what I learned at high school is uh, that in the ancient cultures, being along a river was very good for trade. Yeah. And certainly Maastricht, Liège would then, could easily beat yeah. Aachen. But, but still, yeah. Yeah. Did, do the springs beat the river the most? Yeah, it's a good question. And it has startled uh, historians uh, for, for centuries, in a way, uh, because as you say, uh, uh, the proper setting would be on the banks of a river. Uh, it would 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 make trading uh, more easy easily. Uh, it would would you could move swifter from A to B. I mean, you would really have to think that if you were traveling back in those days, uh, you could only maybe make it for 30, 40 kilometers per day. I mean, people were shorter, the horses were smaller, huh? so it, it just took some more time. And if you were, uh, if you had the ability uh, or the means of traveling by uh, via the river, then it would go a bit swifter. So it's it's a bit of a mystery. But but a lot of people they 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 uh, always um, hint upon the meaning of the hot springs uh, that he was particularly fond of it. Maybe he had some uh, problems with uh, arthritis. Um, that that he would benefit from the from the hot water, but it it is a question. So we, we, I, I just leave it uh, <laughs> okay, hanging in the air. <laughs> now that we go to Aachen, because we decided not to take Maastricht to go to Aachen first, then of course we want to see the springs, for instance the Elysenbrunner. And my first reaction would be, it just smells. It smells, yeah, it smells awful. It's 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 the smell of rotten eggs. Uh, there's a lot of sulfur in the water. It's a bit too high on uh, on arsenic as well. So, uh, but people are drinking it uh, because doctors have been prescribing it. Uh, not only saying it was very healthy for your limbs, so to bathe in the water, but they also would tell you to drink it. Uh, and it was uh, uh, apparently very good against indigestion. And I believe it because if you drink it, and some doctors have been prescribing two or three liters per day. Uh, well, it, 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 it will bring you to a toilet uh, in the end. So it's, it, it might work, but uh, it's not very agreeable. Although the setting of the Elisebrunn is very nice right in the city yeah. centre. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice neo, 
building. It's from the late 19th century or the early 19th century. It's it's a kind of a well, I have to be have to be careful. If 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 German uh, if German uh, listeners are are uh, hooked up uh, right now, uh, they would still call it uh, classicism. Most people in Western Europe would call it neoclassicism already, but it's it's a kind of a, a nitty gritty debate among art historians. But it's a beautiful setting. It's uh, right uh, next to the the cathedral. It's near the uh, the town hall of Aachen. It's uh, it, it it still has, despite the fact that it has been heavily bombed during the Second World War. Uh, so a lot of the uh, the infrastructure uh, was destroyed at the end of the war. But uh, the main buildings survived, and they have been. They managed to recreate this this older atmosphere. But it is not built in the times of Charlemagne. No, you will virtually find nothing from the days of Charlemagne or Charlemagne. It's a kind of a funny name, Charlemagne or Charlemagne. Sometimes in English, uh, it, it goes back to the Latin name Carolus Magnus, uh, so just Charles the Great, uh, Karl the Grote. Kaldesture in Norwegian, I think. Uh, so it all means the same in all languages. Uh, apparently, also because of his uh, size, he was a, he was a for his days. He must have been a giant. Uh, that is, if the bones that they keep inside the cathedral are the right ones. Uh, that's always a matter of debate uh, in the shrine inside the cathedral, allegedly. But as let's say strong evidence for it uh, they keep the bones and they have been calculating his his height and he must have been like uh, one meter 85 one meter 90 yeah? so uh, for those days a giant now Aachen is a relatively compact city so from the Elisebrunner yeah. to the cathedral to the dome is not too far would that be the next stop for you Yeah, the cathedral is uh, is is beautiful. It's um, it's uh, in a way it's uh, it's it's uh, it's really a landmark in, uh, in 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 architecture and church architecture as well in northwestern Europe because of the size of it. It may not be the the, the biggest of churches nowadays, but you have to imagine that 1,200 years ago people were still living in wooden sheds in clay huts, uh, and all of a sudden in a time frame of probably only 20 years maximum, uh, they managed to create this building, which is a perfect octagon at, at the inside of the building. Uh, probably uh, after a scheme uh, derived from the uh, San Vitale church in, uh, in Ravenna in Italy, uh, a church that he, that he visited so that he saw during his lifetime. So it's, a, it's in a way, it's a kind of a Byzantine scheme. And uh, it shows uh, at the inside, you have a lot of nice mosaics, but I do have to confess and, and be honest about it. M the most things that you see at the inside of the church, so the decoration is again also from the 19th century. It has been redone in the, uh, in the Prussian uh, days, mm -hmm. but a beautiful church. Was religion so important for the empire that Carolus Magnus built there or was it just prestige to have a building and then what kind of building well let's build a church well it hasn't changed much i mean the church is the infrastructure of power huh? so uh and i think that's what he really uh saw that in and that's something you have to keep in, in the back of your mind always uh that in those days a lot of people were still pagan i mean in these bigger settlements, you would find uh, Christians, and there were bishops uh, in Cologne, in Maastricht, Tongeren, or in Mainz. Um, 
but a lot of people at, in, in the countryside, they were still adhering to their old pagan beliefs. And especially if you came a bit further to the east. So the church was a means of uh, not only of Christianizing people, but also making sure that you have strongholds, that you really have an infrastructure where you can educate people in the, in, in the new religion, of course, uh, but also convince them that um, that Charlemagne and the kings were well, it's almost like the Pope nowadays, like like uh, God's representatives on earth. Uh, the same goes in a way for these medieval kings; uh, they were being uh, regarded uh, as such in in a way. And, and of course, the church was important. Yeah. Are there special things to see? Special things to uh, take care of? Things that you must see when you go to the church? If I remember correctly, there is a story about a wolf. <laughs> There is a story about a wolf. Well, to me, for me, it's one of the most interesting aspects of the church are the two huge bronze doors. They are giants. They weigh two and a half thousand kilos each. And the fact that they managed to cast these in bronze back in those days, and they have been cast in, in Aachen. Uh, we, it's, it is known. It, it, it has been uh, well certified in a way. Um, is, is a miracle uh, because... Well, of course, I'm, I'm I'm an historian, so I wouldn't know anything about casting of bronze in any way. But uh, two and a half thousand kilos back in those days must have been an, a huge effort. And within the decoration of the doors, you can see, well, you would expect maybe a wolf's head. In fact, the, uh, two lions' heads, but they call them the wolves' doors. And allegedly, there's a story about the devil. Uh, visiting Aachen as the church was being built on the orders of Charlemagne. And they were lacking funds. It's, a, it's a, again, a very modern theme. Uh, you never have the, the real, the proper budget uh, to, uh, to end your project. And uh, the devil promised to finance the whole thing that uh, on, on one condition, that if the church was finished, that he would have uh, the possibility to grab the first soul who would be entering the church. So he would be waiting inside the church on the day of the consecration, presumably in the year 802, as the church was being consecrated. And uh, But he was being tricked. So it's, it's a kind of a... Because that, that, that must have been a dilemma, because this big emperor wanted to be the first one who goes inside. Yeah, well, 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 the story goes that a lot of people knew about the devil waiting inside already. So as the people were gathering uh, in, the, in the courtyard in front of the doors, then all of a sudden it turned out that nobody was really very fond of being of going inside. Huh? They all tried to shove the other one inside, say, well, no, 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 after you. Huh? Uh, but uh, they all knew the devil was inside, and that's, uh, that's how the story in, uh, eventually ends. They, uh, they caught a wolf in the forest, and that's why they call, they're being called the wolf's doors, and they shoved in the wolf. Uh, and the devil, he saw a shade coming in, and he thought, oh, that's my first soul. And he didn't pay attention very well, so he threw himself on top of the shade, ripped out the soul, and only then saw it was a wolf instead of a human uh, uh, soul. And so he was very disappointed, but it was all according to the details of the contract. So it was his own mistake. So he, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad story for the devil. But that's why they call, uh, but they're still called the doors, the wolves' doors. And it tells us how magnificently brilliant the emperor was in uh, organizing things. There must yeah. be more in Aachen than just the Elisebrunnen and the Dome. 
there is more. If you if you visit Aachen, uh, maybe you want to have a break after visiting the cathedral, the dome. Uh, you can always just uh, hang around in the students' district. I would strongly advise to go see the Pontstrasse, uh, Pont uh, Bridge uh, in, uh, uh, in in French and Latin as well, uh, Pontus. Uh, the Pontstrasse is the heart of the students' district. There's a lot of students. Uh, they, uh, as you uh, will be aware of, they have a very uh, big technical university. It has a university status. Uh, over 50,000 students nowadays. Um, so that's really good for just uh, finding a small restaurant or drinking a beer, if that's allowed again. And then maybe after lunch, you could uh, consider visiting the uh, town hall which is also not far away from the cathedral, from the dome, uh, which is also, which, which goes back to the days of Charlemagne as well. Uh, so it was like his, his royal hall uh, meant for, um, for, for, for visitors to impress. So it was not a palace, not in a way that he would have been sleeping over there, but it was like a reception hall. And uh, on these old foundations, they have been, uh, recreating uh, a building in the 14th century, uh, a Gothic town hall. Uh, but uh, the walls, uh, the, the foundation is still the same uh, as the one from the days of Charlemagne. Well, so if I understand correctly, Hilbert, uh, yeah. Charlemagne is actually a very modest king. He was a modest king, but he had strange connections. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people, let's say in the East, uh, if, you, if you go back 1,200 years in history and you would move down south a bit uh, towards uh, what now is Istanbul, uh, the capital of Turkey, uh, uh, in those days Constantinople, uh, the heart of the Byzantine Empire, a city maybe in those days with well over a million inhabitants. And if you compare that with Aachen in the days of Charlemagne, maybe maximum a thousand, a thousand and a half. That was your northwestern capital back in those days in northwestern Europe. Uh, so I, I think there was a lot of laughing in 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 Constantinople, but also in in uh, in Baghdad, uh, the Caliphate of Baghdad. And the thing is, we know that Charlemagne had connections with them, not only with his co-emperor in uh, Christian emperor in Istanbul, uh, what now uh, Constantinople, I mean, but also with Baghdad. We know that envoys from Baghdad arrived, and one of the strange gifts that Charlemagne received from the uh, the Caliph of Baghdad was an elephant. So it was handed over alive in the year, I think, 802 or 3. Um, and it, it, it's, it's on record. I mean, it's, it's mentioned in, in, in independent uh, sources. So we know that uh, he had a nice gift from Baghdad. And what did he give in return? What did Aachen have? <laughs> it's a bit of a disappointment, maybe, for the uh, the caliph of Baghdad. Rumor goes, rumor says that he sent back uh, some um, a bottle of water. Some, yeah, a bottle <laughs> of water. Yeah, yeah, that would have been maybe maybe something for him. But there's 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 talking of um, of Frisian um, um, uh, like uh, 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 fur uh, coats. That was maybe a big thing over here. But, uh, well, I think it didn't really impress the, uh, the Caliph of Baghdad. But, uh, so it was a, a bit of a strange trade-off. And one of the remarkable, if we were talking about tech technology back in those days, you would, you would seek technology in those days in Baghdad, you know, the House of Wisdom, as it was called, uh, the scientists. And one of the remarkable gifts also from Baghdad was a, a clock running on water pressure. 
Well, nobody ever saw anything like it over here. Huh? You can understand. Uh, you can imagine. Uh, so that was a strange gift as well. So, okay. but, but he didn't do any military campaigns or any. He didn't wage any war, basically. Yeah. Well, he has been waging war, but the only thing, even if you talk about waging of war back in those days, you have to see it in a, on a different scale. Um, your your let's say your average army back in those days, if if he he would be on his summer campaign. Uh, and it could go into uh, into southwestern France, maybe even across the the Pyrenees into Spain, uh, uh, but also uh, in the direction of Hungary. Uh, uh, so we know of these expeditions, but then your your average army was consisting of maybe two hundred warriors who wow. could afford a sword and a lance and maybe some kind of body armor. Uh, and and maybe a thousand farm boys, farmyard boys, um, uh, just uh, teaming in. So that was your army back in those days on on a different scale. But it was campaigning all year around until Christmas time. Then they would be they would go into retreat and they would wait until after Easter, and then they started, uh, yeah, uh, hitting the road again. <laughs> It's interesting Thundering, that we pillaging. still see that as the foundations of Europe, because that's that's how he's often been seen. But yeah. I guess Aachen was not the only place that was relevant for him. No, no. The, the thing is, uh, he uh, we know towards the end of his life, he has been staying a lot uh, in Aachen. The last 20 years, uh, he was... We, we can just check on the records. Uh, the, 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 it was, has been inscribed. But we know that uh, in his early days, he would be traveling around a lot. And, and the king would, would did, didn't have a real fixed residence. So it's not like nowadays or later on, like with Versailles or Schönbrunn in, in Vienna, uh, these, these big palaces where the king would always be. Uh, it was just, you, would, you had to be visible. Huh? So you had to move uh, all across the empire. To make sure that you could um, uh, you could speak justice, you could uh, sort out all kinds of uh, uh, feuds in between uh, 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 noblemen, uh, your local noblemen. Uh, so it, it 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 was important that you would be traveling around. And one of these other places, for example, in near Liège nowadays, near Belgium, uh, near Liège in Belgium. Uh, in Herstal uh, was also uh, a place where Charlemagne stayed. We know he was in Maastricht. Uh, we know he was in uh, Nijmegen, uh, Paderborn, Ingelheim. Uh, so he was traveling around quite a lot. Stephen, you have been traveling around in the southern part of the Netherlands as well. I'm not sure whether you have been to Aachen. Would you typically go to Maastricht first? Or so we move on to one of the other cities that are worth to visit? Of course, uh, I I always like to play it safe. So if I've never been to either cities, then I would first go to Maastricht, <laughs> especially during Corona times. I think uh, a domestic destination is always a safe uh, uh, choice. But um, having been to both places, I really enjoy both cities. I think every cities um, every city offers its own has its own beauty and has its own uniqueness. But for Maastricht, I would rather think of the Romans rather than of a great influence of Charlemagne. 
Yeah, uh, the, the people in Maastricht they are very uh, um, uh, proud of of, uh, of of being able to say that they they inhabit the oldest city uh, in the Netherlands, at least that's what they claim, uh, and they have some some good reason for it. But it means that uh, since the days of the Romans uh, and they settled down on the banks of the River Meuse. Uh, Build a bridge and had a stronghold over there on both sides of the river. A lot of people who are familiar over there will know that you have the area called Vik uh, uh, on the eastern banks of the Meuse River, and the larger part of the old city center is on the on the western bank. But Vik is derived from the uh, probably from the Roman from the Latin name of Vicus, uh, which which was being used to designate a city or a stronghold or let's say an urban settlement. So probably the name Vic in Maastricht goes back to the, uh, the Roman days. And it, it, it stayed important uh, until the fourth century. Uh, they had a famous bishop, uh, Servatius, <laughs> the, the biggest church of Maastricht, uh, the St. Servatius on the, uh, on the Freithof uh, is uh, named after a, a late Roman bishop, presumably um, originating from Armenia, but uh, yeah. The Servaaskerk, Servatius on that Freithof, is yep. one of the famous churches in Maastricht, but I, I guess it's not being built during the times of Servatius. No, 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 no. There's, there's not nothing... Uh, uh, there's nothing left from those days. Uh, Except again, the bridge, are, I guess. The bridge, well, the bridge disappeared. The old Roman bridge just uh, unfortunately uh, <laughs> disappeared into the river in the, I think, in the 12th century. Uh, and that's why they started building the new Servaasbrug, uh, mm -hmm. the, the new one, which now leads uh, to the central train station if you, uh, if you come from the western banks. But um, no, there was no church uh, back in those days. Prob maybe there has been a church. What, what was very typical for those days in this transgression from uh, pagan antiquity to the Christian Roman Empire, because in the 4th century AD, uh, officially the Roman Empire uh, went over to this new Christian belief. What, what you see is a lot of old temples were being refurbished <laughs> into early churches they can see it if you if you go visit rome you can see the same thing and what they now think is that near the um uh, uh, next to the um uh, the Vrouwenkerk, uh, uh, which is also the, a nice place to have a drink both of the a very nice place yeah it's it's you have beautiful trees and nice terraces so hopefully it will be possible soon again uh, but you may know maybe Hotel Derlon, which is on the corner. Uh, on Sundays, you can go inside the hotel, so being a, a non-resident, so to speak, and you can go down to uh, you can do, go down the basement. Over there, probably was this old Roman pagan uh, uh, temple on which a first early church has been built. But what you see right now in Maastricht, the Onze Lieve Vrouwenkerk and the Servaaskerk, both of the, the big churches, uh, uh, the, the oldest parts, they date back to the early 11th century. But I guess uh, during times of history, Maastricht has played an important role. It uh, didn't, uh, it, it was almost a Belgian city, I think, in, uh, if I remember from just after Napoleon's uh, time, there was this, this yeah. switch to the Netherlands. So um, you may call Liège a little bit of France inside uh, the north of Belgium. You may call Maastricht a little bit of Belgium inside uh, the Netherlands or even France. <laughs> uh, a very international region. 
I guess also important military uh, relevance. Yeah. The fortifications in Maastricht are still yeah. very visible. Yeah. From yeah. which time are these? Well, you have different uh, parts of it. Uh, the oldest parts, they date back to the early 13th century. Uh, if you walk down from the Ons Lieve Vrouwenplein, along the Langgrachtje, Kleingrachtje, old small streets, and you can get your, uh, your at the local uh, VVV, uh, the tourist information, you can get these, these, uh, these uh, routes through the old city center. You can see some parts of these, these old fortifications from the 13th century. They have been building a new one in the course of the 15th, early 16th century. But especially in the 16th century, the whole thing, military speaking, uh, changes in Europe. It's really goodbye to old warfare where you had clashes between uh, armored knights uh, and a lot of lot people, uh, foot soldiers. Um, it changes over to fortifications and siege warfare. And, and that's where uh, Maastricht kicks in because it was on the banks of the River Meuse, an important fortress later on. And it has been worked and reworked for centuries. Uh, so you have these... These, these later 16th, 17th century add-ons, uh, star-shaped fortifications, uh, casematten, casemats, bastions um, uh, under, underneath. You can visit these fortifications down below also in Maastricht. So it, it is a very nice example of one of these fortress cities. But of course, that lost its meaning in the course of the 19th century. But even later, I remember that uh, the Allied forces had their own caves, their own structures underneath in the old uh, marble quarries, I, I believe. Even inhabited, even the Romans were there digging, I think, for, for yeah. marble. But uh, NATO was also having a, a base yeah. there underneath the yeah. St. Petersburg. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. It's although I have to correct you in one way, it wasn't marble they were digging for. It was this very soft limestone, uh, and oh, it's sorry, been yeah. called. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter. It's called mergel uh, yeah. in in Dutch, uh, and and of course you know it. You always recognize it if you walk around Maastricht. You will see still today a lot of houses with this yellowish soft limestone. If you scratch your nail, you can just leave your name inside the building. But it has very good uh, qualities for building. And even in the Roman days, as you say, uh, they, uh, they started uh, digging for it. And it's, uh, you have these giant structures running for hundreds of kilometers down below in the hills, also surround in the, in the, uh, uh, next to, uh, to, to Maastricht, uh, south and near Kanne. You had these NATO, uh, yeah. f uh, uh, this this uh, headquarters for emergency uh, cases. So, in the event of a third world war, uh, it was being uh, it was the purpose that the whole of the command structure of NATO would go down below, uh, near Maastricht, uh, inside uh, this uh, this Mergel cave. Yeah. yeah. Just on my weak defense, I think chemically it's exactly the same structure, huh? but... Uh, okay. In, <laughs> okay, well, that's it, good. <laughs> calcium carbonate. Uh, okay. Um, but it, it, it indeed played an important uh, history. You can visit the caves and see very ancient uh, inscriptions on, on the wall still. Yeah. There was also the St. Petersburg with a, a huge dent inside it. Yeah. Which is now were... a nature uh, reserve. Yeah, exactly. There was a cement industry uh, they have been using. They have been uh, digging away uh, most of the St. Petersburg uh, to uh, 
to feed the uh, cement industries that were uh, on the banks of the of the Meuse River as well. And the concession uh, ended a couple of years ago. Um, and they made some new plans, of course, for re, uh, uh, redesigning the whole uh, area. And, and they it's now a, a very attractive and very beloved uh, place to just hang around. There was even some time a place where you could swim uh, but um, it's it's very popular with uh, people uh, uh, going for a hike or going on a, on a mountain bike tour. Uh, beautiful scenery. And we almost and, reached the Belgian border at that moment. Yeah. So then there is another city also on the river, the Meuse, the Maas, which is Liège. Mm -hmm. I remember that from industrial settings, coal mining, heavy metal. Not yeah, in music, yeah. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, blast furnaces like the the old style, old school uh, production of steel. Now, in, indeed, I think a lot of people will have not very fond memories if they think about uh, Liège or Lauk, as it's called yeah. in uh, in uh, in uh, Dutch. Many people remember it from the 80s when this was the place to cross as soon as possible before yeah. the traffic jam started <laughs> and exactly, then travel exactly. south. It was it was the only opportunity to to uh, to head on for for uh, for the uh, southern uh, southern France, uh, so you would have to cross over Liège, and there was no uh, uh, no way of um, of yeah going around. So you would be crossing the city, and it was a it was a, a dirty city, a lot of uh, yeah. So that 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 really gave it a bad name, and in a way, of course. It, it still has many sides to it. Uh, you can still find very ugly parts. But the thing is that in the last 10, 15 years, there has been a kind of a, a well, almost a reassessment of what is, what is beautiful or not. And a lot of people, they now cherish this old industrial heritage, which you can still find today in uh, Liège. So if you, if you, for example, if you dig photography and you like uh, black and white photography, Go to Herstal, go to Serain, uh, near Liège, where you see the old industry buildings, the uh, the blast furnaces. Um, so it and, and that that gives it a, a a very international atmosphere as well, because in the uh, already in the 50s and 60s, even before. Uh, a lot of migrants came from uh, from Morocco, from Turkey. Uh, we we see that all across Europe. In the 50s, you had a lot of people coming from Greece, from Italy. So you still have very strong communities within Liège, which gives it a very international atmosphere. And that uh, strong industrial feeling is still very present there, which is different from some Dutch cities where just very modern buildings are just put next to it, by which the old historical the buildings are crumbled away. That That's not the case yeah. in Liège, where it is in its full yeah. historic strength. It's full of historic strength, although um, it's always a matter of taste. I mean, uh, what 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 I like doesn't have, uh, necessarily have to be what the other one likes, and what what you see in Liège. But in a way, it's it's almost like funny. You see these changeovers in architecture. I mean, you see the ugly mistakes from the 60s and 70s also in in the in the lining uh, of buildings in the lineup uh, across uh, the river there's a beautiful uh, view from a hill an old yeah. military base and if you look down you see the municipality building which is just a block yeah, yeah it's a block that's that's the first thing that i would i, I would i would 
use some some force to 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 get rid of it. <laughs> uh, but as you say, if you if you're standing on on top of the uh, the hill, the citadel, la citadel, uh, and they speak French over there, so that might be a bit of a drawback for a lot of people. But uh, uh, don't have it. Don't let it scare you off. Um, because it, it, you have beautiful areas, and especially the one you just mentioned. If you climb the hills to the citadel, and the area lying down the slopes of the hill, it's beautiful. A lot of rest, restored buildings, new small uh, uh, enterprises, restaurants, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of design. Uh, so they, they do have good taste, and and ever more. The old historic center, city center of Liège, is is becoming ever more agreeable. What would characterize Liège most? Because the city them, uh, itself also um, advertises with the city of beer lovers, a city of yeah. fashion and design, yeah. but then maybe yeah. design in a different meaning as we would uh, connect to it in Eindhoven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it, I think it's, it's. Um, I think a lot of people in, in in Liège themselves are struggling within it with with that issue as well. They have been uh, developing uh, plans and they have been effectuating them as well um, with with grand scheme architectural things. Like you may know the uh, the train station of uh, Guillemin. Uh, just south of the uh, city center, which has been designed by the uh, Spanish um, um, uh, designer, the, the architect uh, uh, Santiago Calatrava. Calatrava is a name in the Netherlands as well. I know there's somewhere in the uh, Hoofddorp, there's a bridge which has some rust problems, <laughs> also designed by Calatrava. Uh, but it was a project of hundreds of millions of euros. But it's an oh. icon in the city now. Even for, yeah, it's for, for, for photographers, it's a, yeah. a must-go. Eh? Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's really one of the the most uh, interesting points of interest. And in a way, although it's a bit um, a bit bit off from the old historical city center, I think that's always a, an attractive thing to uh, to uh, discover a city is not only stay in the historical city center uh, and do all the things, go to the museum, go to the church, but Go on foot, go from the old historical city center to the Guillemin Central Train Station. It's it, it will maybe, you will need 35, 40 minutes, but you get to know the city and you get to know the interesting aspects of a city. The small cafe, uh, a place where you can get the best French fries. Uh, I know they claim in Maastricht that they sell the best French fries at Reitz. And I don't want to offend anyone again, <laughs> but... Uh, Liège is full of uh, uh, places where you can get uh, the best French fries. Or um, so it's or it's it's Flemish fries they call it. Yeah, yeah, Flamse frieten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, don't say Flemish in Liège; they will kill you. But <laughs> you have to be cautious. Uh, that's of course always the language issue. Uh, there always has been a strong division between the French-speaking Belgians and the Flemish Dutch-speaking uh, Belgians. And in the 19th century, as you were telling uh, Jean-Paul about the uh, the industry in the 19th century, the rich prosperous part of the country was the southern part, the French-speaking part, because that's where you would find all of the heavy industries. They were making the money over there. And in, in Flanders, it was the, the simple peasants. And of course, in the 19, in the 20th century, I mean, after the Second World War, and, and especially in the last couple of decades, it shifted completely. Uh, now it's, uh, it's uh, the other way around. 
a lot to of me, the... all of this is very interesting because I didn't know about all of this. And uh, while we've been talking, I've been also browsing on the internet as well, and I find out that actually Leash is actually Belgium's third largest town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After Brussels and Antwerp, yeah, so I think yeah. it's probably one of those most underrated cities as well yeah. in Europe. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. It has, I think, the, the let's say the. Uh, the the Liège, maybe not the the city itself, but the whole uh, 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 urban surrounding is like over five hundred thousand inhabitants, and I think that's also the interesting part for let's say if we're talking about all three of the cities. I mean, where I live, I live really I, you could pinpoint it in between Maastricht, Liège, and Aachen. Uh, but if you if you draw a circle of one hundred kilometers around where I live, then you have an urban setting which has more inhabitants than uh, the Randstad uh, because it you will get Cologne inside, you can get parts of the Ruhrgebiet, Aachen, Liège, Eindhoven, Leuven. Uh, so it, it is also a place of huge opportunities, uh, I think. And in a way, that's a bit underrated. Although international cooperation in Limburg may be a bit difficult, that's what I always hear from uh, industries yeah. like DSM uh, being there yeah. although the the university in Aachen is very internationally oriented also uh, universities in Liège are are quite uh, quite active just to get back to to another aspect of the older industries with older then i mean uh, the previous century the mining industry a yeah. lot of that is preserved in belgium near liege blenji but also mm -hmm. in in genk sea mine and so on in the netherlands we had huge facilities near geleen the mauritz main near helen but but it's it's not cherished there so much as industrial heritage most of that is taken down and replaced by nature yeah, maybe it's also that Liège really has uh, a history, as we're speaking about uh, the mining for coal, for example. I mean, in the Netherlands, it's something that we more or less stumbled upon in the 19th century. Of course, as the industrialization made it ever more important uh, to to fuel it all. Uh, but mining for coal in near Liège, it started already in the 12th century. Uh, because on the slopes of these uh, of these hills on the banks of the River Meuse, uh, where you go, where you can walk up to the citadel, uh, it was quite easy to find the uh, the, 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 coal. the coal. And uh, in the 16th, 17th century, Liège, which was an independent prince bishopric, as it was called, so you had the prince bishop of Liège ruling the place, which was a pretty much all of Eastern Belgium nowadays. Uh, but it was known as, as it was the blacksmith of Europe. Uh, all of the cannons, armor, uh, nails, uh, uh, it all came from Liège. So everybody wanted the Prince Bishop of Liège to be his best friend. <laughs> and a nice example, might you ever be in Liège, uh, go visit the, uh, the Grand Curtius Museum, which is also on the banks of the Meuse. Um, it's a beautiful uh, Muse Renaissance steel, red building painted red with this uh, yeah, rectangular facade. Uh, but it was uh, being financed by one of by, by the, uh, the the big player Jan de Korte, Jan Kortius, uh, <laughs> who was making his money in this uh, uh, war industry. So beautiful museum. Museum. Does it still have this international importance all across Europe, or is Liège more a town of history? 
Uh, faded away. I mean, the big industries, especially in the 19th century, you had the famous name in Liège is uh, an English name, Cockerill. Uh, William Cockerill came to uh, to Vevier first, later to Liège. Uh, started um, um, uh, some heavy industries, especially in the cloth industry for textile. Um, but he bought his way into heavy industries. So everything was being made, ships, trains, Cockerill made it all. But it has been taken over later on by uh, Arcelor and Usinor. And now I think it's part of the Mittal uh, steel uh, group. So there is still some activity, but not on the level as it was in the, uh, let's say, shortly after the Second World War. We have been discussing with Hilbert de Waal of via, via slash cultura.nl about the main cities in the south, Aachen, Maastricht, Liège. Is it all centered around the main cities or would you also recommend to see some of the smaller villages or just um, enjoy the nature in that region? Yeah, you, you can have it all. Uh, as I was discussing with Stephen already, he mentioned Valkenburg, uh, Vals. These are lovely little towns on the Dutch side of the border. You can go to uh, Vervier or in, on the Belgian side to Eupen, which is interesting as well, because there is a small German-speaking minority in Belgium as well. It's officially the third language, and Eupen has its own parliament. You can visit it. It's 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 interesting. I can I can recommend it. But on the German side, yeah, you have Cornelie Münster. You can go to Monschau, uh, enjoy the scenery of the uh, at Gulldal uh, in southern the southern parts of the Netherlands. Uh, the, the 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 space in between Aachen and Maastricht is a is a lovely scenery, uh, scenic landscapes with uh, little streams uh, and. Yeah, it's it, it's good for hiking. It's good for for taking your bicycle with you, your mountain bike maybe, and uh, enjoying the scenery. And you're never far off from uh, from culture uh, because you can always take a bus. Uh, even the public transport is quite good. If you just take the bus, you'll be within uh, uh, Maastricht or Aachen uh, within half an hour if you're uh, in the countryside. And it may even be a good place too take a bike famous tours yeah. we have the amstel halt race every spring yeah, yeah. not in corona times yeah. maybe but uh, it, it is a very famous place for uh, sports for hiking and yeah. enjoying culture yeah indeed it i is. believe you must be looking forward to summer <laughs> at the end of covid and the start of summer yeah that's what i'm longing for what are you doing as a city guide in corona times just uh, well, hoping uh, that you can guide people uh, and, and preparing nice stories. Yeah, preparing nice stories. That's part of it. So I'm planning with my colleagues to to see what we can do uh, once uh, it all starts to be back on track again. And for me personally, I have some. Uh, I had the fortune uh, of having some projects in uh, in in uh, in, the, in, uh, in other parts in in the central parts of the Netherlands, uh, which which more are in line with my uh, history background, uh, working for uh, some uh, interesting parties. So I had some some. Luckily, I had some uh, some backup uh, facilities. <laughs> we wish you success in the coming period. And I'm Thank pretty you. sure that uh, with your guide, we can find a lot of interesting places. Thank you for being present here on Radio for BrainPod and advising us for where to go. I think uh, this hour has been almost uh, as long as the drive time to go uh, south. Although by now you must have made the choice at the junction Kerensheide to go to Aachen or to go to Maastricht, uh, Liège or one of the uh, the other places. 
Yeah. Thank you very much, Albert. It has been my pleasure. Thank you.